Well, good morning. As Chet said, that tonight is the, the final in the series that ha, uh, has been on on Sunday nights. Well, this morning is also the final for Jude, our third and last in the series. And we'll be doing verses 17 to, 15, or to 25. Turn in your Bibles with me to Jude. And if you uh, are new and you do not have a Bible, there's one in, in front of you in the rack. And you can turn. I'm not sure what page it is, but it's right before the last book of the Bible, Revelation. If you get to Revelation, turn left and you'll find Jude there. So let's hear the word of the Lord, Jude 17 to 25. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, with our Bibles open before you, we ask for the enabling of the Holy Spirit to both speak and hear and understand and to believe and obey and to walk in the path of your choosing. So accomplish your purposes, we pray. In Christ Jesus, amen. Well, I have another road story this morning, but it also includes backpacking. As I grew up, my parents would always take our family camping, even as a preschooler, but then they added backpacking onto that, and we would go for week-long trips up in the high country of the Sierras. And then when Laura and I got married, we also did a lot of camping, and I also took my boys backpacking. And as you see up on the screen, this is a picture of me, but this is later on when I went backpacking with a friend of mine from San Jose, one of my best friends I worked with, a guy named Jim, and we went up for a week-long trip up above Hetch Hetchy Reservoir in the north country of Yosemite. And that uh, granite rock that you see behind me there will be in the next picture that I'll be standing on top of. And so as we went up the trail, the switchbacks, and we got up and we spent about a week hiking around. One of the days we went out to the mesa on top of the, the big granite rock. And as you notice, I didn't get too close to the edge. And neither did Jim. Neither of us wanted to cause the other to stumble or fall. Neither of us wanted to stumble. And so with that, I think of 
one of the passages that we're going to look at right here. I thought as I read the wonderful promise in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. There are promises of God keeping us in the letter of Jude. Not only here in verse 24, but also in Jude 1. Jude tells his readers that they are called, beloved, and kept in Christ Jesus. In Jude 3, we are told to contend for the faith, contend earnestly. Remember, two weeks ago, we saw that he wants us to agonize for the faith, to keep false teachers and apostates who have slipped in the side door from watering down the faith and causing some to stumble and doubt and tell you that they have a better way. Jude's letter draws to its conclusion with one crucial question that may arise How can we as believers practically contend for the truth so that we will be victorious in the day of rampant falsehood? In other words, how can we personally apply Jude's cautions regarding apostasy to our own lives and ministries? To be sure, Jude's warning is unmistakable, and it clearly demands a response. But what does the response look like, and where does it begin? Well, Jude, of course, recognized that his readers needed more than just a warning. They also needed a plan of attack. Instead of being merely defensive, they had to be proactive in their faith. I can hope that we see this morning in the verses is at least that the best reply to the scoffers is not a clever argument. The best reply to the scoffers is a transformed life. Jude reminds us in 17 and 18 that the apostles predicted that scoffers would come with ungodly passions. Jude 19 goes on to say that it is those who cause divisions, worldly people, and are devoid of the Spirit. The best reply to the scoffers is not only to contend for the faith, but actually to live the faith. And what you really have in Jude 20 and 21 are four marks of those who are called to live out the faith. There's only one command amongst these verbs. The verbs are building, praying, keeping, and waiting. The command is the verb to keep yourselves. The others are expressed differently, as you will notice. He starts in, letter with, he starts in the letter in Jude 1 and ends the letter in Jude 24 with God keeping us. But here in Jude 21, we are to keep ourselves. Let's think about keep yourselves in the love of God for a moment. In other words, he says, stay where you are. In Jesus, you have been brought into the circle of God's amazing love. He has called you, and you are his beloved in Christ. And you have been kept for Jesus. As John put it in 1 John 4.10, Here is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love is an initiative-taking love. Most of the time, we think about love or loving someone. We're usually responding to something that we find attractive in the other person or that our love for them is in response and they are 
what in actual fact God's love is for us and it doesn't operate on the same basis that God has not loved us in Jesus on the basis of how attractive we are. God has loved us because he has always loved us. Now, how are we to keep ourselves in the, God, in the love of God? In 1 John 15, where we have a record of Jesus using this picture of the vine and the branches, he was divine and we are debranch. As he explains to his followers these things, he says in John 15, 9, As the Father has loved you, so I have loved you. It's an amazing thought. The love between the Father and the Son. That's the measure of my love for you. Then he goes on to say, Abide in my love. What's Jude saying here? The same thing. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, how will we do that? Well, John goes on in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Remember, Jesus came to do the Father's will. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane with the prospect of all that was before him when he was going to take the sins of the world upon him? He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. If there is any other way that this could happen, that would be fine with me, he said, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But when people come up against the notion, for example, of the commandments of God, and they think, there must be something wrong with this. This is a call to legalism mentioning that we're supposed to obey. Yes, keeping commandments of God on account of the love of God by the enabling of the Spirit of God is not easy. We need the enabling work of the Holy Spirit to keep ourselves in the love of God because we live as believers in a battleground. Temptation is everywhere, every day. The inclinations of our hearts are still sinful inclinations. We're not the finished product yet. We have been redeemed, but we're living in this world. And in the responsibility of keeping ourselves in the love of God, we need to do just that. Let's think about it this way. How do you keep yourself married? By keeping yourself married. By being true to your covenants. I said I will on my wedding day to Laura. It's not a legalism that keeps us true. It's a love. It's a covenant-keeping love. So there's no collision between love and obedience. In fact, he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will reveal it in obedience. It even, even makes me think of a song, Trust and Obey. I'd like to change that to love and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust or love and obey. Robert Murray McShane said learn much of the Lord Jesus for every look at yourself take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely such infinite majesty 
and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief of sinners, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled upon you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of sweetness and excellency in Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. That sums up, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, with the command, let's go to the other verbs. In verse 20, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says, Your fellow citizens in, with the saints and members of the household of God, you're not on your own, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Building yourselves up is a corporate reality. It is also a lifelong reality. It's not just that you can attend a course that's called Building Yourselves Up in the Most Holy Faith. It's a four-week course. Once you finish it, you can move on. No, it goes on for all our lives. Jesus told his followers, I'm going away. The Holy Spirit will come. He will lead you into all truth. Then what I want you to do is teach the truth. The regular exposition of the Bible and the application of the Word of God is central if you want to be building yourself up in the faith. This is the reason why you read all the way through the Bible. God is saying to his servants, whether it's Moses or Joshua or any of the other prophets, assemble my people that they may hear my word. It's a mutual edification, mutual correction, mutual consol consolation, and it's mutual encouragement. How am I going to work this stuff out on my own? I can't on my own. I need you, and you need me. The writer to the Hebrews in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you who, who are sinful, unbelieving, with a sinful, unbelieving heart, leading you astray from the living God. He says, look out, take care, be alert. The natural temptation will be to fall away. So we are on the lookout in a wonderful way. Matthew Roberts said, a human life is only what it should be if it is centered on serving and adoring God while we are assembled as the body of Christ. And here in his most holy striking statement, if you want not only to know, but to be your true self, then you need to go to church. 
You ever thought about it this way? Where is the true expression of humanity? It's not in the Super Bowl. It's not playing athletics. It's not on a university campus. It's in the assembling of God's people. Why else would the whole thing be moving to one great assembly as we sang about in the hymn of heaven that no one can number from every tribe, language, people, and tongue. God has given us the privilege of keeping ourselves in the love of God as we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Then praying, praying in the Holy Spirit. This is the very praying that a Christian needs always to pray it is the prayer in the Holy Spirit contrasting with those in verse 19 who are devoid of the Spirit. They are the people who are perhaps telling you, those in verse 19, this is the way to really make progress in life. But Jude says they are actually devoid of the Spirit and anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I see a cross-reference of the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, in Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Praying in the Spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit, Praying in line with the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on later in Romans 8.16 to make clear that we sometimes don't know how to pray and that the Spirit himself even intercedes for us with groans that we can't even utter. Our prayers are an expression of our dependence on God. And so we pray with one another. We pray for one another. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and Paul even asked in Romans 15 30 I appeal to you brothers by the Lord Jesus and by the love of the spirit to strive with me to strive with me in your prayers to God on my behalf I noticed the other morning riding on the bus I read this verse at five in the morning, in the dark, on the bus, that he's asking us to strive together in our prayers for Paul. That's what he was asking his readers. The word strive to means to agonize together. That same Greek word from two weeks ago, it's the same word for contend. Agonizomai. Let's agonizomai together for prayer for one another, for the church and for our loved ones. Let's agonizomai together in praying for healing. Let's agonizomai together for those who need Christ. Let's agonizomai together for our global outreach team members. Let's pray for our nation and for the world. And I can go on. I heard Chuck Swindoll say a few decades ago, Living the Christian life without prayer is like building a house without nails. 
Now, I think we need to pay careful attention to the notion of building and praying. Given that they're put together, you see, all of this we're, we're able to do on our own, but we're not best on our own. It's when we're prepared to be honest with one another about the fact that we're seeking to keep ourselves in the love of God and building ourselves up in the most holy faith that we find out from one another that we're not the only person with a certain problem or a certain sin or that we're not the only ones messed up. We're together in that. Then we move on to what we have is an indication of what runs through the Bible that our Christian lives have a now and a not yet dimension to them. We're building, we're praying, we're waiting. We're waiting to see what kind of love that the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. That's present tense. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as the Lord is pure. So the reality of being in Christ on account of His mercy sends us out to live where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12, in this whole process, as we recognize the challenges that are within us and the challenges that are around us, we're heeding the exhortation to keep ourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ on that day when you are welcomed into eternal glory and you sing the hymn of heaven. Then we move on to mercy. We pray for mercy for ourselves and having discovered the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been entrusted with the responsibility and the privilege of being merciful toward others. The Bible centers on this. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now he says, I need to exhort you to deal mercifully with doubters and disputers. A reason for him to address those who are doubters is because he knows that some doubters will hear or read this letter. Jude is saying that dealing with the doubters and the dealing with the doubters and the disputers is not about winning an argument. It's about winning them, winning them to salvation. And here in verse 22 and 23, he has three separate groups in mind. Again, Jude has his triplets. First of all, have mercy on those who doubt. That's group one. I take it that these people who perhaps have been attracted to the story 
of those who have crept in. They're not certain that it's actually better than the faith, so they find themselves in a quandary, doubting. It might be something like, well, doubting maybe about Jesus, who is our only Master and Lord. Well, I don't know whether he is or he isn't my Master and Lord. They're doubting because of the false teachers. And doubting about dreams. Well, I don't know. I like the dream thing. Actually, it seems more immediate. It seems more direct. It seems more spiritual. But they're doubting because of the false teachers. Or maybe they're doubting about the nature of freedom. Now those false teachers have come and they've said grace frees us up to do anything we want. You don't really need to get tied into the rules or the Bible. Lighten up. But you need to say to them, hey, look out, that's dangerous. It's a call to preventive care. It's a call to pray for our friends and to be patient with our friends, to be persevering with them. Jude saying, love them to win them. They're not going to be won by an argument. Go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. I'm not suggesting that you diminish the gospel. I'm not suggesting that you do anything other than contend for the gospel with love. The second group, save others by snatching them out of the fire. I take it that these individuals that he has in mind have gone a step further. These are individuals that have not just, they're not just unsettled by what has been said. They've actually begun to embrace some of it. They've begun to take a seat alongside the scoffers themselves. You remember the opening lines in the Psalms? Blessed is the one who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Well, here's what happened. They once really delighted in the law of the Lord, but now the scoffers have come and told a different story. And some of them began to say, well, I think I'll take a seat. It's been a, I'm enamored with the new way of seeing things. And instead of embracing the truth as being objective, universal, verifiable, and ultimately proclaimed in Jesus Christ, they have succumbed to the idea that there are all kinds of truths. In fact, it seems far more appealing if you can have your own truth, if you can have your own spirituality. Take, for example, the game of golf. These kind of people might say, the best you can do in golf is not put up any pins on the greens, not put up any red flags where the hazards are, and not put up any white stakes where the out-of-bounds is. But what you're playing is not golf because there is no golf without a place that has a target, without places that are hazards, and without places that are out of bounds. As these people are saying, there is a way you ought to figure your Christianity. Don't let anybody tell you how to do it. No, make your own framework. You see, for these people, the holy faith was unappealing. And he says, 
you'd better snatch them out of the fire. Now, what is a snatching mechanism? It's the gospel. It's the story of immense love of God in Jesus for those who are tempted to take a different path, believe a different story, and try it in their own way. It's not an argument. It's an adventure, and it's a love story for us to snatch them. You see, the reason we're close to Jesus is because God has reached out to us in Jesus. He took the initiative to take hold of our hand. Now, what are we to do with those who are sitting in the dangerous position of doubting and dissenting and disputing? We're not to walk idly by. We're to not leave them. We're to save them. Save them by snatching them. And the snatching mechanism is the story of the gospel. We become the means by where God brings these people to salvation. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save some by snatching them out of the fire because you will save their souls from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's in James 5. Now what about group 3? To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I take it that these are so far gone that it will not be possible to intervene without putting oneself in danger. Doesn't it seem that that's what he's saying? Why does he introduce fear? Well, maybe he has in mind the fear that Paul has in Galatians 6, where he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. In other words, if you go into the environment where they are, do so in the fear of God and in the realistic fear of your own sinful heart. A professor at Westminster said once, those who would save gross sinners have to go nearer to sin and Satan's domain than it is safe for them to go. In other words, over group three, there should be a big sign, and it will say, approach with extreme caution so as not to be contaminated. In other words, be tender with sinners, but don't get soft on sin, because sin stinks to the high heavens. Some people, I think, are given a peculiar ability in this area. It's not for everyone, though. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, and that's the church that I grew up in, was a unique individual for sure. He's the one who said once, some want to live within the sound of the church and the chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. But the point to the congregation and for Jude's readers, and for us, is to hate the sin, but treat the sinner with mercy. To realize that from our perspective, such people, as in group three, appear to be beyond hope. But they're not beyond hope. Because they may still be the recipients of God's grace. Because Jesus can fully save completely 
those who approach God through the Father and through or God the Father through Him. With God, failure is never final. We don't give up. Because the answer to every group is the same. The same person at the cross of Jesus before whom we all come and bow and say with the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever said that to God? It's not a question about have you ever gotten interested in religion. But have you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Now in verse 24, Jude returns us to where he began. God keeps you. Notice the opening phrase, now to him. It'd be easy just to slide past that, wouldn't it? But remember, Jude has begun with God. He then ends this letter by establishing, without doubt, the one in whom all security and joy, all assurance is to be found. There is a problem of my heart. There is the danger of the path, and there is the presence of the enemy. It's like you're standing on the granite rock high above Hetch Hetchy, and you have to be very, very careful. There's somebody who's just looking at the opportunity to push you over, to make you stumble. Now, it's very important here that we understand that Jude is not writing about the possibility of the believer stumbling and falling out of the family of God. That's not what he has in mind. The scriptures are really clear. Philippians 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If our Christian life began with us, then we could never be confident that we would ever get through to the end. But because if we started it, how could we be sure that we would end it? But no, he began it. He began a good work in us. And it brings us to completion. You see, these individuals who had been on the receiving end of false teachers with their various dreams and fantasies and immoral suggestions, Jude recognizes that some of them might have easily stumbled into these environments. And he says, now listen, before any of the rest of you start to do that, you need to know this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But didn't we just read earlier that we're supposed to keep ourselves? Yeah, that's in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And how are you to do that? Well, he's able to keep you. God provides the means. We use the means. God preserved Noah in the deluge before the, the judgment of the flood. But Noah built the ark with God's instructions. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. You're kept from and presented to. There is a day when we will be presented. That final graduation where you know the tassels come off on one side and then you get to throw your hat up in the air. That's the kind of thing. It's going to be 
a great event. How will we ever get there? Well, the one who keeps us will present us. He's the one in charge of the presentation. We're not going to go there and boast about our background. What we did, what we said, what we gave, or whatever it may be. No, it will always be unto him. You see, if a congregation does not begin with unto him, it will begin with something else. And if people come to our congregation, they don't say this must be about him, then they will start to believe it must be about us. And then we will have failed. Unto him, he will present us, present us faultless. He will present us before the presence of the glory with great joy. In other words, the thing that we long for is actually beyond us. The solid joys are these joys. The joy of sin being gone. The joy of Satan being shut out. The joy of temptation being over forever and ever. And the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What will we do? We will say unto him, the one who keeps me from stumbling, the one who brings me here, the one who presents me faultless and gives me joy forevermore. And we'll proclaim together the last verse of Jude. And let's proclaim it together, verse 25. Do you have that? Let's claim it all together as the great chorus, the hymn of heaven. And to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.